The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Tremendous change can start with one small act, something as small as a broken window. That broken window can be one act of crime, one act of neglect, one act of hate. One broken window opens the door to many more, and the shattered glass at this house starts to shout the self-fulfilling story of a broken street. Before we know it, reality begins to bend around this new perception. This distorted environment starts producing refuse it never had before. Value drops, poverty rises, homelessness moves in. Broken homes and families, abandoned wives, mothers and children. Gangs, violence, murder, and a drug epidemic taking more lives than we can count. Word begins to spread from conversations to a headline to a full-blown narrative. And finally, we're branded with the ugly nicknames and a repulsive reputation. The condition of the street spread to the block, transmit to the community, and infect the entire city. And from one broken window, we're now left with a broken city. Well, tremendous change can start with one small act. So that's where we start, with small, singular acts of goodness. We fight neglect with care. We combat crime with service, and we battle hate with love. We mend, repair, rebuild, one window at a time. As God's hands and with Him on our side, we serve, give, and live for our city, believing that the tides can and will be reversed. Believing that we are the catalyst that transformed this city, healed, mended, restored, made new. We stop the trash talk, flip the script, change the conversation. We rewrite the headlines and recreate the reputation our city will carry. God is for our city. The church is for our city and we are for our city. Our culture is in crisis. You know, it seems like every day there's a new example of a famous person guilty of sexual abuse or sexual harassment comes from the world of politics, journalism, Hollywood, the business world, pretty much every part of our society. The hashtag MeToo movement has shown us that the problem is far more pervasive than we ever imagined. And the problem is that it affects our community, our city, it's crossing global boundaries with the human trafficking issue. The National Human Trafficking Resource Center tells us that uh, there were over 150 cases in Maryland last year alone, and another 150 plus cases in Pennsylvania as well. And those are just the reported cases of human trafficking. You know, too often these problems, they just seem so immense, so gigantic, and we just feel like, man, there's, there's nothing we can do about it, that what, what can we do? And uh, oftentimes we, it, it's easy to just turn the other way and keep going on with our lives, and especially when the victims are oftentimes nameless, faceless statistics. And to that end today, I, I could stand up here and I could share with you a bunch of statistics about uh, how it's affecting our community and our, our city. Uh, but instead today, I, I, I've decided to put a face to that, uh, to the issues that are facing our culture today. And I, I've invited my wife up here this morning uh, uh, to share today. And uh, Jen, I've, I've asked you to come and uh, share your testimony a little bit uh, about, being the, uh, about being a victim of childhood 
uh, sexual abuse. And so this morning, would you just take a few moments and share with us your story of surviving sexual abuse? When I was growing up, this was not something that you talked about. So you were left feeling like you were alone. And for me, it started at the age of three at the hands of a babysitter. Going on a few years later, um, two different situations, two different relatives that were fairly close in age, just a few years older than me, um, at the age of eight, happened two different other times as well. In both situations, I was told never to tell anyone because no one would ever believe me anyway. Now, at the time, my parents didn't know anything that had gone on. Why? Because I never said anything. Being so young, I didn't understand that those words that were spoken to me were lies. I didn't know that my parents wouldn't reject me. See, I was already a rejection from my own biological father who wanted nothing to do with me. So I didn't want this to mean that everybody else would reject me as well. Going into my teenage years, I struggled with depression. I struggled with thoughts of suicide. I struggled with feeling ugly and worthless. And why would anybody ever want me after what I'd been through? Because it was my fault after all. I would start things, join things, and then quit them because what difference did it make if I finished? Because nobody cared about me anyway. And you know, I've learned that uh, although some of the context varies from story to story, I, I've learned that there are literally millions of stories that echo many of the same similar situations as what my wife went through. And um, one thing though that uh, Jen and I have learned is the world is replaced the word victim with the word survivor. But one thing that we believe firmly is that God does not want his children to be either a victim or just a survivor. But God has so much more in plan for his children. And so, Jen, would you also share for a few moments about how God has brought you uh, through and out of uh, the trauma that you had gone through? dealing with nightmares and processing what I'd gone through for several years. <clears throat> when I was 18 and 900 miles away from home at college, I started to seek help. And thankfully I went to a Christian college, so I had godly counsel to help me work through the things that I had been through. And it was at that point I was able to talk to my parents and let them know what had happened. And obviously I came to realize that all those things that Satan told me was true, that you know I was gonna be rejected and things, none of that was true at all. I'll never forget that the summer after I started college, um, I came home and growing up, I'd gone to kids camps and youth camps and things, and I always wanted to go back as a counselor. And so this would have been the first opportunity I had to do that. And I had a lot of people in my life tell me at that point, there's no point in you going, this is stupid, why are you doing this? You need to spend the time working. You don't have, you can't afford to take off time to go and be a counselor where you get paid nothing to do this. And if you know me at all, you know I'm pretty stubborn and pigheaded and I decided to do things my way. Um, so I went and one of the things uh, that the 
the speaker at that time said and made us all repeat in, in one of the messages was, Lord, heal me from what others think of me. And I'll never forget that because in that moment, that's when God broke down those chains that were holding me back, those chains of feeling guilty, those chains of feeling worthless. I knew in that moment that I was his daughter, that he loved me and that he could make all things new. Make no mistake, God ordained those steps. He brought me to that moment. He brought me to the, that point where he can work through that pain for me. I didn't know it at the time, but as it would be, I actually met a counselor that was pretty good looking and decided to marry him later. So. God had ordained those steps, and that might seem silly to you, but if I had listened to what everybody was telling me in my life, don't go, don't do it, would I have walked through that healing process ultimately? I don't know. Maybe I'd still be struggling with it today. But if you're here and you've been a victim in, in some capacity, whether male or female, just know that God is and is able to and is willing to heal you. And he wants to use that pain. So if you haven't done so already, seek counsel and, and get the godly guidance that you need. And she has probably also many times regretted the decision to go to that camp. But uh, God knew that, uh, you know, somebody as stubborn as she was, though, needed somebody so unstubborn like me. Yeah, you don't, have, don't believe that for a second. Uh, listen, if you are sitting there and my wife's words have touched home with something that has happened to you, uh, later in the service I'll, I'll, I'll be talking about uh, uh, how we can help you connect uh, with the support that you need and as God helps you through what you have been through as well. You know, this subject of sexual abuse, though, is is just the beginning point of this message. It's the beginning illustration of a, a much broader problem that is integrated into our society where the powerful take advantage of the weak. It's a secret dark thread that runs through our culture saying, leverage anything, any advantage you have over someone to get where you want to be and to get out of them what you want to get out of them. And so we look around and we see the physically powerful abusing the physically weak. We see the emotionally powerful abusing the emotionally weak. We see those who are in powerful positions abusing those who have no position to fight them in return. And, you know, sometimes we just want to scream. We just want to scream, enough! Stop! But we feel helpless. We feel like there's nothing we can do. Like, what, what difference could we make anyway? Where would we begin? Where would I begin? A and is it even possible to affect change in the face of evil in our culture? Do we have any personal responsibility in all of this? And if so, what is it? You know, during this For Our City uh, sermon series, we've been looking to the book of James for our guidance as to how we can respond and how we need to respond uh, to the circumstances and situations that need our response in, in our city and in our communities. 
And today we're going to look to James chapter 5, and, and the author, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, he, uh, he is going to share in the first few verses, he's going to let out his frustration at, at what he sees as the abuse uh, of the powerful against the weak in his culture. And uh, you can hear him releasing this anger through his words and, and his frustration through his words. And we're going to pick up James chapter 5, starting with verse 1, and read verses 1 through 6. And here are his words. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. I, you sense the anger he has right now yet? Uh, the corroded, this corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. Their cry, the cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You've spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not even resist you. You can see James is just kind of screaming out what we all want to scream when we see injustice, right? We see the injustice around us. We want to shout, enough! And we want to yell at those that, were, uh, that, that are the perpetrators and say, you're going to get what you have coming now. And he's saying God has heard the cries of your victims. He's basically shouting out, enough is enough. He's looking around at his community, and in, in this case, he's seeing uh, the, the financially powerful abusing the financially weak. As he's saying, I've had enough, enough of laborers, enough of laborers being lied to, cheated, falsely imprisoned, and, and even killed. And he looked around further at his culture, and in that day and age, there were other abuses in their culture. Uh, the, the first century uh, people in, in James' culture, they, they cast aside daughters. They believed that young women were not as valuable as young men. They didn't count as heirs, and they were cast aside. And James was saying his anger, his righteous anger, enough, enough of young women being cast aside is worthless. He looked around and he saw ruthless rulers starving their own people to feed their own excess. He looked around like you and I and he saw injustice flourishing in the world around him in which he lived. But here's the thing, James wasn't simply lamenting the oppression that was prevalent in his culture and ours. Instead, what he was doing, he was building up to a call, a call to Christians everywhere and across all times, not to fall into the what difference can I make trap. You see, we can't afford to worry only about ourselves. We, as Christians, have been charged as Christ followers by God to lead the way. To lead the way to show, uh, to lead the way against injustice and show our city that there is a better way to be. To show our communities that there is a different way to act. Not just to sit there and gripe and complain and, and yell, but instead to show that there is a better way to live. If we fail to act, our faith and our religion is useless. 
as followers of Jesus, we're charged to stand up against oppression, emphatically demonstrate that Christianity means that we are against the exploitation of anybody. We have to do it. We cannot afford not to. We must do it for the women. We must do it for our young people. We must do it for the weak among us. We must do it for our city. James spoke in chapters 1 and chapter 4, and Pastor Patrick covered these chapters, and he, James believed that to remain silent when you can make a difference is just as immoral as the injustice itself. You see, what James is saying to you and I today is it's not enough to believe that things should be different. We must become the difference for our city. And that's the big idea today. Be the difference. Don't just sit there and think there needs to be a difference. There should be a difference, but we must become the difference. The first and second century church set the bar for us, set a bar that we need to follow. They made a difference in their culture that lasted for generations and centuries. You see those girls that were being discarded, the daughters that were unwanted by their families and being sent out, Christians didn't just complain about it. They didn't just tell people how wrong they were. In James' day, Christians stepped up to the plate. They began to adopt these girls. They began to take them in and they started, uh, they started the, the adoption process in, those, in that culture and in those societies. And you know what? Over time, it made a difference. Christians stepped up, filled the void, set a new example, and over the span of generations, they taught their society a better way to be and taught, and they changed society's view of their own children, their own daughters. Further, Jesus' teaching on adultery and divorce helped to give added legal rights to women who were being mistreated and abused in their homes that before had never had any rights. Furthermore, the education system in the first and second century was, was geared and favored only wealthy males. The aristocratically elite males were the only ones who were given any kind of education. It was the Christians in that first and second century that broke from that norm, and they became the first ones in that society to begin to accept into their education system females and the poor, and they made a difference, and they set an example that there was a better way to go and a better way to live, and they changed over time. It took decades. It may have taken decades and generations but over time, they changed their world's view of, the, of what education meant and how to, to, uh, how to relate to the oppressed. They stood up, and guess what? Now they're passing the mantle to you and I. Yes, we may live in a society where there is a lot of abuse, where there's a lot of difficult subjects, where there's a lot of uh, different things that are hurting people and tearing people's lives apart, but guess what? We don't have to just sit back and say, oh, I guess that's just the way it is. We are being charged to take up the mantle of the early church and to begin to make a difference right here today. Jesus made a difference in our lives so that we can turn around now and make a difference in our city, in our community, and in our culture, not just for today, but for decades to come. You see, we were all born oppressed 
trapped by our own sin. Jesus paid a ransom for us. We took communion earlier, which is representative of exactly what Jesus did. He stepped in. He died on a cross and shed his blood to break us free from the eternal death and the eternal judgment that we were facing. But he didn't free us just for our own sake. He freed us so that we could in turn offer that freedom to other people as well. When we accept Jesus into our hearts, his eternal spirit comes into our temporal spirit. And that means that we're not just sitting around anymore, waiting to go to heaven or waiting for eternity to start. If you ever thought, hey, now that I have Jesus in my life, someday I'll have eternal life. You've got it all wrong. Eternal life doesn't start someday. The minute you let Jesus in your heart, your eternal life begins right then and there. You're already living your eternal life. And so we have a responsibility to live our life for eternity now. And that's the first way we can make a difference. To be the difference, live for eternity starting now. Begin to live your eternity now. You see, we can't afford to be short-sighted and worry only about the instantaneous differences that we can make. We live in a society, man, we want everything right here and now, don't we? I mean, how many of you are like me? You've actually, you know, we talk about living in a microwave society, but how many of you have actually stared at a microwave and gone, why is it taking so long? I mean, where have we, we've gotten to the point where we can't even wait for the microwave to get done. Okay, come on, I know I'm not the only one that's done that. <laughs> and I readily admit it, right? You know, we want instant results, but here's the thing. We're not living just for the instant results because you know what? That's what keeps us quiet. That's what keeps us because we look around at the depth of the problems in our society and we say, I can't make a difference right now. And so we give up. But we're not about the instant difference. God, James is calling us to live for eternity, to live eternally starting now. I'm going to pick up James chapter 5. I want to read verse 7 and 8. This is how James follows up his, his rant. Okay, He says, dear brothers and sisters, now he turns his attention to, to you and I. He says, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the Lord, coming of the Lord is near. What he's saying is just like a, a farmer plants. A farmer sows and plants their seed because they know they're not going to get an instant return on that. They don't come back out the next day to harvest it but they plant it because they are sure that harvest is coming. They have the long term in mind. They begin with the end in mind. You know, I, I, on Sundays here, I'm known as Pastor Dave, but I have an alter ego. During the week, I teach math at North Hagerstown High School. And uh, so uh, one of the classes I love to teach, in fact, it's my favorite class to teach, is called Financial Literacy. And one of the reasons I love to teach this class is uh, it's the only high school math class where the, the students don't all say to the teacher, when am I ever going to use this in real life? Come on. Some of you are my students. Some of you have said it to me. Okay. You know, people say it about algebra and stuff, but when it comes to teaching them about money, 
Hey, nobody says that about money. They all get it. They need money, right? They want to know how to use money and how money works, all right? So I don't have to explain to them when they're going to use it in real life. One of the things I teach them, my students, is uh, we learn about 401ks and saving for retirement, and I run through these spreadsheets that they have to work through and stuff. And uh, the lesson, one of the lessons is that uh, you're retirement savings, what you save in your 20s is more important than what you save in your 50s. That you have to begin with saving with the end in mind. The idea is you have to know where you're going when you start and you have to start saving and it's more important at the beginning. And you know what though? That's just money. You see, everything we have in life, it's gonna perish. And our thoughts are, our thought process, our humanity is knowing that all the things we have are going to slip away one day. What do we do? We hold on tighter to it. We want to hold on tighter to our money, to our cars, to our homes, to our, our gadgets. Even though we know that the things we pay top dollar for today are, are, are going to be obsolete tomorrow. But it makes us hold on tighter to it when we really should be doing is, hold, is not holding tighter to it. When we recognize that the things of this world are just passing away, that they are just temporary, how much more important is it for us to live with the end in mind? For us, the end is not the end of our physical life, but the end is eternity. We need to live now with eternity in mind. We need to live our life believing that what we are doing now, what we are sowing, what we live and how we sow into our community, how we sow into our city, the things we do for our city. It's not about what the difference we can make right here in this moment. It's about living in a way that will make a difference for generations to come, will make a difference for decades. Listen, there are people coming after us for decades and, and centuries and generations that are going to follow in our footsteps in Hagerstown and, and Greencastle and Waynesboro and the other places that we live. And when they follow in our footsteps, let me tell you, they are counting on us. They are counting on us as Christians to stand up and show beginning today that there is a better way to live, that there is an eternity to live for, and that we do not have to be the, what the world says we need to be. You see, if you can see that there's a change that needs to happen in your culture, then guess what? You have the responsibility to be that change right here, right now. Our life is just temporary, but the way we live it, we can live it eternally already. Be the difference by living eternally. We also can be the difference by living expectantly. See, the, the farmers, they, James describes them uh, sowing, and, and they sowed expectantly. They sowed believing that there was going to be a great harvest. It says they sow with joy because they sow with joy because they know that that seed is going to one day turn into some great harvest. You know, we are to sow our lives, to make our actions, not the way we invest. We are to invest our lives, but not the way we invest money. When you invest money, you're hoping for a good return. Even when you invest it well, you're still just hoping the economy cooperates. Okay, you're hoping over time the economy cooperates. I know, I, I remember uh, my, my grandmother did not trust banks 
because she was working in a bank when Franklin Roosevelt closed all the banks. So she didn't trust banks. Look, the idea here is this. When you, no matter how good you invest your money, you're still just hoping. You're hoping the economy cooperates. You're hoping things fall the right way. But when we invest our lives in eternal things, when we invest in our lives in being the difference, in showing the world that there is a better way to live, when we invest that way, we don't invest we don't invest hoping for a return. We invest knowing for a fact that God is hearing the voices of the victims, that God is seeing what is going on and that God is bringing the answer. We can invest knowing for a fact that we are investing in the one sure thing that's out there. We are investing eternally. And so here's the thing, too many Christians live their lives negative, moaning and complaining about the state of the world. You know, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. There's no hope for this world. It's just going to keep getting worse and worse. You know what? I reject that today. I reject the notion that my city has to keep getting worse. I reject the notion that my community has to keep getting worse. I reject the notion that my school is going to keep getting worse. I reject that notion. You know why? Because I serve a God who is more powerful than the evil that is out there in this world. And I reject that today because I know that my God sits on the throne and that he can make a difference. So if there is a single person out there who is not a Jesus follower and they live a happier, more optimistic than life than I do, you know what? I got to ask myself, what's wrong with me? I should never get out dreamed by somebody who doesn't have Jesus, who doesn't have the hope and expectation of knowing that God is on the throne. I should never get out dreamed. I should never get out optimistic. That's not even a word, I don't care. Couldn't care less this morning. I'll make up words if I want to. Why? Because I've got the microphone, I can. Uh, and I better move on. So uh, I'm going to read one more scripture today. And this scripture is going to be Jesus' words. I'm going to invite the band to return at this point. And uh, this is the words of Jesus Christ to us uh, on this subject. And so we're going to look to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 19 through 21. Here's what Jesus said about this. He charged us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The challenge from Jesus today is to live your life as an investment, an investment into, your, into the eternal. It's time for us to invest our time, our talent, our, our energy, our expectations. It's time for us to invest all of it into the eternal, into the belief that we can make a difference. And you know what? Our city is counting on us. Investing, we are investing in the one sure thing. Investing our lives in being the difference. In being the difference for our children. In being the difference for the women. In being the difference for the young people 
in being the difference for our city. That's our job here today. Be the difference for our city. So this morning, how do we respond to this message? What does it really mean for us? Well, first of all, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you don't have the hope of eternal life in your, your life, that's where you begin. That's your response today is to simply in your own way, look, you don't have to repeat some prayer or, or, or repeat some mantra. It's not about what you say. It's about you in your own heart making a decision and letting God know, hey, I need you in my life. I want to serve you. I want you in my life. Say it however you want to in your own heart and your own way. And if you need somebody to talk to you about that decision, we have our prayer team down front. We have people at the Raise to Life banner in the cafe afterwards. They would all be more than willing to have that conversation. They would love to. For those of you here today that this message and my wife's testimony maybe stirred up into you some difficult things that maybe you're still dealing with and you're still on the other side of it. I want you to know today, God does not want you to be a victim anymore. God does not even want you to just survive what happened to you. God has a great plan for your life, but it begins by taking a step. So if God has been dealing with you today, if there's somebody here and God has been dealing with you and you're sitting there going like, I, I still feel trapped by what happened to me. I want you to know our first line of defense as Christians is right here. Our prayer team is down front here. They would love the chance to pray with you. Also, we have our pastoral care team available today. And uh, you can see our prayer team or, or, or stop out in the lobby at the Race to Life Bear. And we'll, we'll get you in contact with our pastoral care ministry. And they can connect you with the resources that you need the counseling that you need and the other resources and support that you need and going from where you're at to not just overcoming it a little bit, but for God giving you new life and giving you victory over what you've been through. For every single one of us today, though, we all have a response. You see, it's not enough. We can't keep quiet. We can't sit back and let the world destroy our city, let the world destroy our community. We know our community has problems. Listen, I can tell you stories of my students, but let me tell you something. I don't care about what is out there, the evil that is out there. I have hope that God has a brighter future for Hagerstown. I believe that God has a brighter future for Greencastle and Waynesboro and wherever it is you live. Our God has a brighter future, but it begins with me. It begins with you. We must decide together that we are going to be the difference. There are generations coming that are counting on you and I. Will you stand with us today? Will you join me? Can we be the difference for our city? Does not end today. It begins today when we leave here. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. 
We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.